Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to Chopping It Up. I'm your host, Michael Halen, the Senior Restaurant and Food Service Analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. Today's guest is Benny Gradwall. Benny is the co-founder and CEO of Cognovi Labs. Uh, it's a company that analyzes social media posts to help form insights into consumer behavior. Uh, Benny and the team have provided Bloomberg with some very timely analyses over the years on companies like McDonald's, Starbucks, Yum! Brands, uh, and most recently, Target. So I'm, I'm excited to have him join me uh, this morning. Thanks for doing this, Benny. Well, good morning, Mike. Great being here, and thank you very much for inviting me to your podcast. Yeah, of course. AI has been all over the news, and uh, you know, I thought I, I'd, I'd hop on the hype train, and, and when it comes to AI, you're my expert, so it was really a no-brainer uh, for, for asking you to come on with me. Uh, that's a big task, but yeah, happy to be here and answer anything and uh, you know, talk AI, psychology, or whatever you want to go. Cool. Can't wait, man. Um, so I guess please, if you could please tell the audience about your career path and how it led to your founding of, of Cognovi Labs. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting story. I started in, in academia a long time ago and, and uh, you know, on the quantitative side in astrophysics, but then switched into finance in the early 90s. And, uh, you know, for me, everything was around numbers and, and analytics and, you know, hard stuff. And, uh, you know, I was very fortunate to have a chance to take a class at Harvard in behavioral economics pretty early on. I think it was 1997. And that was a real eye-opener. Uh, you know, I got back and uh, I was working out of an investment firm out in San Diego. And I came back and said, oh my gosh, the world actually doesn't revolve just around numbers. It revolves around people making decisions. And that just became a passion. I was trying for the last... 25 years or so, figuring out how we humans make decisions. And the more I got into it, the more fascinating it was. And, you know, I went through a financial career and then into emerging technologies. And I said, look, I need to really figure that out. You know, I, it, it's, it's, it's just fascinating how you go into through a financial career and you work in, uh, you know, I was a Morgan Stanley then at City during the financial crisis. And negotiating on the mortgage side with homeowners without knowing anything around human decision-making, just felt, you know, that something is missing. And so uh, I was on a, you know, on a mission to figure that out. And that's how we started Cognovi Labs, to really understand human decision-making processes. Wow, that's very cool. And I'd imagine that's a very emotional process for, for somebody, right, at, the, at that time, right? Um, a home with, you know, having to maybe sell your home, uh, or move out of a home that you've been living in, you know, for for some time. I, I think there's a, probably a lot of emotion in that process, right? 
Yeah, there's a lot of emotions and there's a lot of pain. And, you know, uh, so we came in, or oh, I came in in, uh, in 2008 to help stabilize uh, City and the bank. And, and I was responsible for a, a pretty seen, uh, significant mortgage portfolio on the, you know, the whole loans, about $280 billion. And, and the question was, well, you can't sell it. It's toxic assets. So what do you do with it? And so you have to negotiate with the homeowner, correct? That's the beauty of a mortgage portfolio. There is actually uh, an owner on the other side, and so you can modify and, and, and change the asset and take the homeowner through a, you know, um, a process um, and into risk management, something which is good for the bank and something that's good for the, for the homeowner. And so I went to my boss very early on and said, okay, that's great, but now I have to negotiate or find a way to negotiate, you know, in quotation marks, negotiate, but through, through analytics and, and outreaches uh, with millions of homeowners. How do I do that? Where do I find the chief psychology officer within city who can guide me how to do that? And guess what? There, there wasn't any. There isn't a chief psychology officer in city. So you have investment banks and you have consumer banks, which by definition work with individual consumers, and there's no psychological understanding how that engagement should work. And it's just mind-boggling, correct? And so it was very clear that there is an, a world out there which goes beyond the hard data, which is untouched to some extent, but probably more important than the hard data. And so how do we figure it out? And by the way, I think the, the team at City at that time, City Mortgage, did a great job. We kept about a million and a half American homes, uh, families in their homes. So whatever we did, we did, you know, it worked. And... It was a great outcome, but still, something was missing, and uh, and that's where I am now. Look, think about the U.S. economy. Two thirds of the U.S. economy is a consumer, driven by the consumer. Yeah, how do consumers make decisions? You had Bloomberg open up a Bloomberg terminal. You have every piece of information out there, tick data, you know, revenues and earnings growth, and and anything. Where's the cognitive, the behavioral signals on your screen? If two-thirds of the economy is driven by the consumer, where is that piece on your terminal? Well, so, it's hidden on our restaurant dashboard with our Cognovi Labs data. So yeah, we got it. <laughs> <laughs> That's at least a, a starting point. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, all right. So who are Cognovi's customers and, and what problems are you helping them solve? Yeah. So look, our technology is applicable anywhere humans make decisions. So... When we started, we started in politics and went into finance and and uh, and, and, and the corporate world, um, and so it's it's really understanding, um, you know, if you if you're on the finance side, understanding that you are the customers of your investment. Right? Think about a retail company and or a restaurant. You know, who's going into the restaurant? Who's who's going to McDonald's versus Starbucks? And what's driving them really? Or on the consumer side, you know, why would somebody you know, buy a Peloton bike or not buy a Peloton bike and um, and really understanding the, the decision-making process. Um, and so the the customers, so the financial companies obviously are, are, are great customers, but also the corporations are because they have to reach out to their clients and emotionally engage with them in a way that they can drive performance. And... Uh, and so let me step back, if, if you can give me a couple of minutes, just explain why that's actually relevant. So, uh, you know, if you go back even to Sigmund Freud, who said, look, we have a rational mind and we have a subconscious 
mind um, and the subconscious mind makes a lot of decisions. Um, it was never really identified how much uh, at that time. But what became interesting is a few things which came out of it. One is, yes, there is a subconscious mind. Second, the subconscious mind makes actually the majority of decisions. We as humans are not as rational as we think we are. You know, we're not making rational decisions. And you see that in finance, correct? We started off with, you know, efficient market hypothesis. Everyone is rational, but now we understand the cognitive biases and all that stuff. And all of a sudden, oh, my gosh, there are actually inefficiencies in the market. They're driven by cognitive biases. Oh, we're not as rational. We're not rational machines. So um, we saw that there, and, and but we have validation, you know, Dan Kahneman and Damos Tversky in the 70s did their whole analysis. Dan Kahneman got the Nobel Prize in 2002 around yep. you know, prospect uh, theory, how we're not as rational. And then you have the... Uh, so, so we know that the rational mind, well, while it's important, it doesn't make that many decisions. Really, the subconscious mind, which makes the majority, the rational mind is more a controlled process, correct? And so... Sometimes it breaks down. If you're in rage, for example, it may rage break down, but otherwise it, it really is a controlled process. Um, but the subconscious mind makes most of the decisions. So that's great. Well, how does it make those decisions? Are they similar to the decision a rational mind would make? Right? If the answer is yes, then all our theories around the rational mind and the factual decision-making process still hold. If the rational mind, however, makes the subconscious mind makes the decision in a different way, then we're in trouble. Well, it turns out we are in trouble. <laughs> the subconscious mind doesn't make decisions the same way the rational mind makes it. And here's why. Well, Donny Kahneman found out, and, and I'm a swear to everyone else, that there are cognitive biases. Correct? So those cognitive biases obviously are different. So we know that they make the decisions differently. Well, that's great. So maybe we just ask the rational mind what decisions were made so we can still use the rational mind to figure out how people make decisions, even if the decisions were done differently than the rational mind would do. Well, that doesn't work either. Again, we're in trouble. Why? There's a guy by the name of Benjamin Libet, a neuroscientist who in the 80s showed that the subconscious mind makes a decision a fraction of a second before the rational mind actually recognizes the decision was made. Wow. So here we have a problem. We know that most of the decisions are made by the subconscious mind. We know that decisions the subconscious mind makes are different than the rational mind. And now we find out that the rational mind doesn't even know when the subconscious mind makes a decision. Therefore, it can't explain it. So now we are really in trouble, correct? <laughs> For sure. How do we measure, how do we figure out, therefore, how people make decisions? I can't ask you, Mike, why did you do something? Because you probably acted on it um, before you even figured out that you're acting on it. And so surveys are great, I can ask you, but they are probably wrong some of the time, maybe not all of the time. But a lot, many, many times, and we can go into that and why that's relevant to AI and why uh, that has to do with a lot of things which are happening today with AI and hallucination and so on. But this is an important um, understanding as a starting point. We're not rational. The majority of decisions, however, are non-rational. 
and our rational mind doesn't know what's what the heck is going on in our subconscious. Yeah, that's uh, really, really interesting stuff. Stuff that I've been interested in for for some years. I think I was uh, introduced to Kahneman and to Versky. I don't know if I'm saying his last name right, but uh, through Against the Gods, which is a great book about uh, human and their, humans and their interaction with risk. And the audience can't see my bookshelf behind me, but... Uh, you know, thinking fast and slow by Kahneman is back there too. So uh, it's definitely a very cool uh, and interesting subject. You know, and it's something that comes up. You know, I I see in advertising. I've I've read about advertising that sometimes you need you need to get in front of the customer. I think eleven times or something on average before like you enter the consideration set. And so different companies that we work with talk about the the different ways that they're trying to reach out out to customers it's just just really interesting to me yeah um you're absolutely right repetition is important my guess is if they're emotionally engaged they will probably bring that 11 down quite a bit yeah uh, because emotional connection emotional intelligence is the superpower everyone has and it's completely um underutilized uh, yeah so and so you've done a great job of of you know figuring out which of our companies are, are creating emotional connections online, whether it be through uh, different marketing programs, whether it be through uh, their sustainability efforts, or and, um, and recently you did something about their charitable giving uh, with us, which is cool. Um, you also just completed an analysis of Target uh, for my colleague uh, Jennifer Bartashis. Uh, you know, what, what did you and the team find out about Target? Yeah, it's actually very interesting. So, uh, and, and you know, maybe for for the listeners, what we do is we analyze any free flowing conversation. It could be social media, discussion forums, blogs. It could be uh, you know your own uh, surveys or transcript, and we extract ten emotions in context and actually natively in twenty languages. So no translation. And then we map that through our proprietary psychological framework into uh, an intent score and an action personas. What we found with Target, and, and the question was, Target has been on a downward trend and actually was hit, obviously, uh, with its pride merchandise. When they came out of that, there was a, a whole controversy around that, and, and the stock really uh, took a dive and has been settling somewhere. And the question is, you know, what's actually happening um, in terms of the consumer's emotional attitude towards Target? And so we, what we did is our team, uh, they, they analyzed um, social media and discussion forums around target conversations, free-flying conversation, extracted those emotions, and as I mentioned, the intent score. And what we saw is that a couple of things. Um, it's not the first time target is getting into a, a water. I mean, that's part of who they are, and that's perfectly fine. If you look at the intent score, you see spikes up and down, and the intent is really how emotionally engaging the consumer is vis-a-vis -vis target, and how emotionally engaging they are um, in to go and shop and, and the motivation score. We see ups and downs, and you know we see, we saw quite a bit of a um, some kind of an action around obviously the the controversy. When you look at, and I think that's an interesting component we always look at, what is their baseline emotions. What are the typical emotions they evoke in the consumer? And how has that been disrupted by the uh, pride merchandise? 
And while that's then disrupted, is it coming back to a similar emotional profile and an emotional attitude of the consumer, or is there um, a structural shift which would impact consumer behavior? That was really the question. And I'll tell you how that works for Target, and then I'll explain that how that actually works with Pepsi. I'm sorry, with uh, Bud Light, not Pepsi, Bud Light, which went through a similar uh, event in April. Um, so when you look at Target, um, you clearly see that there was a there was a certain profile, emotional profile, which was um, somewhat reflective of the consumer's, um, you know, emotional attitude and responses towards. Uh, target which was disrupted when they came out with the merchandise. What we have seen just recently over the last couple of weeks is that there has been a reversal back to that emotional uh, baseline. Not yet there, but we see a relaxation and a return to that. Which from a, I'm not going to say anything about the stock, but what it means is that emotionally it seems at least that we are settling back to the status quo it was before the event. And I'll leave that up to you to figure out what that actually means in terms of the consumer behavior. But that's an important component. Why is it an important component? Again, because emotions drive decisions. And if the emotional profile, a certain profile, a complex profile, leads to certain action tendencies, and they're coming back now to a similar baseline they were before, they're not there yet, but they seem to go back, it will tell you something about consumer behavior going forward. This is not what's happening with Bud Light yet. It's interesting, Bud Light has a completely different profile um, and had a different profile before you know, the April 1st um, event where the transgender influencer Dylan Mulvaney came out um, and had that video. And what we saw is a complete disruption of that as well of that profile and no reversal yet. And what's interesting, in addition, what we also measure is not just the consumer's response, emotional response to an event or a company or a brand or marketing, we also measure the response from the company itself, from the CEO, what they put out. And what we found in the case of Bud Light is a complete disconnect between the feeling of the customer after the event, after April 1st, and the CEO's positioning. So think about it. I have a problem. I call you. You are my call center, correct? I have a problem with you, with the product, and I'm really angry. And you just tell me everything is honky-dory and all is fine. I will feel as a customer, you're not, you're not listening. You don't hear me. You don't hear, you hear my work my words, but you don't hear me emotionally. You do not connect with me emotionally, and therefore you don't solve the problem I'm in. And that's exactly what's happening with Bud Light. They actually put something out which reflected their emotional profile pre-event, pre-April 1st, without taking into account and appreciating that that's not where their customer is right now. And so we haven't seen that reversal yet there, whereas in the case of Target, we, we start seeing uh, yeah, it's real. It's really interesting, you know. And it's interesting too that you said, you know, you'll you'll analyze 
um, statements from the companies. And I think you've mentioned in the past too, that you've done some stuff on, on earnings transcripts and things like that, right? Yeah, we have, we have done some of it. We've uh, noodled a little bit on it and, uh, you know, there's a lot of, you know, the companies who, who analyze the free flying conversation in terms of the sentiments, uh, which is positive, negative, neutral. Um, and, um, just want to mention that why we have probably the first or one of the first patterns on sentiment analysis we have moved away from sentiment analysis because we don't believe it does give you what you expect it's really it shows you the tone of the conversations how people talk not what they feel and how they're going to act and you know the example i always give is you know you go to a restaurant and you sit down you get dinner five minutes later the waiter comes and asks is everything okay and what do you say yeah, yeah, it's all fine. And you give a positive sentiment, even if the food came late and doesn't look appealing, you'll never go back to the restaurant and just give a positive sentiment. That's why sentiment doesn't really work and clients come to us and say, yeah, sentiment is always positive, except in the rare cases when it's not, but usually it's positive and we don't know what the drivers are. So what we do is you really have to go to the emotional level and more importantly, you have to understand how emotions combine into complex emotions which lead to action. So people always think, oh, there are good emotions, bad emotions. There's joy and, and, and hope and trust, which is good, and anger and fear and, and you know, and, and contempt uh, or sadness is bad. But that's not the way the human psyche works. We have always all the emotions, right? There's no bad and good. It's, it's a combination. So, for example, fear can be very good for marketing. You know, too much fear is bad. It freezes you. But a little bit of fear creates fear of missing out, right? Leads to call to action. So the combination is important. And so we always look at the combination. That's where our unique psychological framework comes in. Um, and, and we're able to do that because we're, we're really combining deep machine learning with behavioral psychology. So we have software engineers and data scientists, but we also have a chief psychology officer as part of the core team. So we built a psychology into the technology. Yeah, and it's cool. Um, one of the things that I've learned working with you is that, you know, a lot of these marketing programs need a broad range of emotions. You know, there's, I don't know how many it is, it's, but uh, maybe in the low teens of different emotions that you track. And if a company doesn't hit on a wide array of those emotions, some of these marketing plans uh, fall a little bit flat, right? Oh, absolutely. And, and you see that again and again, people are putting out on the marketing campaigns, uh, you know, um, whether it's a website, whether it's a, it's a PR or a marketing campaign on social media, whatever it is, that they just put out hope and joy. And to some extent, nothing is wrong with hope and joy because if I ask you where you want to be, you know, what's a good emotion? Oh, I want to be happy. Of course we want to be happy. But if your customer is already happy, they will not do anything, correct? If you're in front of, with your friends, in front of a TV, watching your favorite whatever, your sports team win the finals, you're so happy you're going to sit there and not get up and do anything. Why would you? You're already happy. You're already in a balanced state. You achieved it. It's, we call it an aspirational goal. You're already there. For me to have you move, I need to get you out of that happy stage and create the reason to move away from that unhappy stage to a happy stage. So to get to that. So how do you do that? Well, we take them through an emotional journey. You create some anger at the competitors or at the lack of a product or at the uh, you know, lack of quality of a product, whatever it is. Create some fear, some contempt. 
then you come in um, um, with, a, with a surprise and amusement, some trust that you have the solution. Think about every marketing campaign as a movie. That's what I tell my clients. Think about a movie. So let's say you like, uh, my guess is you like going to the movies. Let's say you sit down and everything is happy, joyful and hopeful. What happens? It's boring. You fall asleep. You need a villain to create some action, some tension, some fear. Then the hero comes in. There's surprise, there's amusement, there's some trust, and the, the, the you know, there's a, again, you I mean, the villain comes, to, and there's a battle going on. It's an emotional journey. That's what captures us. Every marketing campaign needs that. If you're stale and you just put out hope and joy, you're going to fail because it's not creates, doesn't create a call to action. And we measure that and we tell you what you need to create to create that call to action. And that's what turns out to be predictive. And that's what we have been providing you for the last five years or so. Yeah. Yeah. It's, a, it's, it's really interesting stuff. I love it. Yeah. Uh, since early 2018, I think that was our first, our first one. It was a report on McDonald's and how they could uh, improve their marketing. We made, there was some good calls in there, I think by both of us. Oh, absolutely. I think you, you did. Yeah. I really love your write-ups and, uh, and I think the, the McDonald's was, was really, uh, the first home run. I mean, uh, I remember 2018, you came to us and asked, okay, so McDonald's just came out with a new, you know, Big Mac. And at the same time, they had the 24 hour breakfast and they also just launched a one, two, three dollar menu. And, and I think you told us that uh, the Big Mac is going to be the bigger driver, at least in the mind of McDonald's. Yeah. And so what we did is we looked at the last several months of social media conversation, extracted emotions and created our intent score, motivation score. And what we found was fascinating. We found that breakfast has a high motivation. Consumers are highly motivated towards breakfast at McDonald's and very stable. So they're really consistently going there. And, and, and buying, you know, getting breakfast at McDonald's. The one to three. That's my favorite day part at McDonald's is breakfast, hands down. Yeah. And, and clearly for the consumer, it is. Uh, one to three menu had even a higher motivation. And I was, that was one of the first insights, higher motivation, but it didn't get enough marketing dollars. So the awareness wasn't there. So we, our suggestion was put more money into the one, two, three dollar menu because that's what's going to drive your performance. And when we looked at the Big Mac, it was a disaster, a complete disaster. Motivation was volatile, up and down. It was mainly negative. People were clearly moving away. And when we looked at it, it was, you know, it wasn't the marketing, it was the product. And the suggestion we had, and you wrote that down in 2018 perfectly in the first quarter, is that if that's the biggest driver, they're going to miss or run the, run the risk of missing revenues. And so fast forward quarter and, you know, McDonald's comes out, announce earnings, they miss revenues. They say they miss revenues because of the Big Mac. And by the end of the year, they redid the product and, uh, and then things came back. So uh, it's, that was a fascinating study. 
Yeah, they they uh, they changed course and and went back onto that you know strong trajectory they they had. But that was really interesting. I'm gonna pat myself on the back. My call was a, a lot less. Uh, you know, it was more of a common sense call. It was about the Big Mac sauce. I thought I said I th- they thought they should start putting it on their chicken. <laughs> so you know, a much more uh, elementary type of of call. But uh, they they finally hitting on that in uh, 2023. So everybody loves Big Mac sauce. No, that was a great report. Um, yeah, thanks. Couldn't do it without you. Um, what else did we do? We did um, plant based meat, right? And plant based meat right now is kind of struggling. Um, and it's something that your research warned us that, that it might, you know, especially at quick service, because um, that isn't the core type of customer for, for plant based meat, right? And so a lot of people tried it at a fast food restaurant and then they were, you know, once and then they either bought it at retail or they didn't. Um, but can you maybe give us an update on what's going on with plant-based meat uh, and the consumer and, and what, what could it mean for the recent introduction of cell-cultured meat? Yeah, uh, I mean, the plant-based meat, uh, that was fascinating um, analysis as well. And that goes back to, what was it, late 2019. So plant-based meat came out, uh, you know, Impossible Burger and Beyond Burger, and uh, there was an enormous amount of novelty and conversations and excitement. And when we looked at, you know, a few months into the the launch and from the beginning into the first few months towards the end of the, the year, we saw that motivation actually, while still high, was started to fade. And, and I think that's something which is uh, a learning for every company out there, uh, including self, you know, cell-based, uh, cell-grown uh, meat. Uh, and, and any product is that you have to understand what is emotionally engaging, what's not, what are the key emotional drivers of your customers towards your product. And what we found is that we know today, or we, know, we knew then that plant-based meat, you know, was built to have the flavor and the texture of meat, but it's actually quite unhealthy. Maybe good for the environment, but it's unhealthy. But when you come out with a plant-based meat and that concept, the first thing is, oh, it's vegan. Vegan is healthy. So immediately in the conversation, we saw that there is a dissonance, emotional dissonance between what the product stands for and what it actually delivers. And we pointed that out and said, look, I understand there is an internal conflict because the product was built differently than what it's what it looks like. So maybe not calling it plant-based meat and doing calling it slightly different so it doesn't have the connotation with the vegan or vegetarian correct, community might actually help here. And that started to hurt. And I think this is a great example of why you need to understand your consumer. And you know we I mentioned to you that maybe outside of the of your your vertical um, and your interest, your industry, you know, another example of a company which completely missed uh, understanding its clients was, was Peloton. As, uh, you know, we, we talked quite a bit about that. So we had a, a, a private equity company come to us in early 2021 asking us about uh, analysis of Peloton. And Peloton did phenomenally well. Right? They went to become public now a year and a half before in late 
2019 and then 2020, obviously, with COVID and the pandemic, everyone stayed home. Revenues went just, you know, uh, went, uh, you know, accelerated and the stock just was on a tear. In early 2021, they announced they're going to open up a second manufacturing plant because the demand was too big. So the question was, what happens in 2021 when the vaccine comes out? COVID vaccine was just coming out late 2020, and the, uh, the expectation was that the world will open up again. And so what happens to, you know, home equipment, home sports equipment? So we, we didn't talk to Peloton, we only talked to our, our client at Private Equity, and, and we went to the website, Peloton's website, to better understand what is the strategy. And as soon as you looked at the website, it became very obvious what their strategy is. And the strategy is that to compete against the gyms. They viewed that the gyms would be their biggest competitor. People would go out, the world opens up, people go back to the gym. And so it was all about competing against gyms membership. So everything was around price. Only $49 a month were less expensive than membership. Everything was around price. It was very obvious. And by the way, this makes perfect sense. If you ask people, and you ask the rational mind, what do you think about price and Peloton? Everyone will tell you it's expensive. It's expensive. Like Lululemon. For years, people said Lululemon is expensive. But here's the issue. When we looked at the emotional profile of conversations around Peloton, and specifically around price and how expensive it is, in early 2021, we saw that people clearly talked about it, but nobody emotionally cared. And that's the key point. It took us exactly three minutes to figure that out. People emotionally do not care about price when they buy Peloton or don't buy Peloton. What they do care about is online classes, is instructors, it's the social status. And if you focus on the on the reasons which are unimportant to your clients, you will miss out on actually what's important to them and therefore you're going to lose revenue. So 2021, we went back to our clients and said, hey, I think they risk missing revenues big time. And six months later, they announced they're going to miss a billion dollars in revenues. And then another six months, the CEO was gone and now they look at the company. It's all about online classes and, and instructors. And that's the same with Plant-based meat. You have to understand what are the key emotional drivers of your customers. Otherwise, you miss. Yeah, it's very cool. Um, you've also developed a, a job confidence uh, index. Can you talk, talk about that and what your proprietary index is, is telling you and the team right now about the U.S. job market? Yeah, we, we have a history of, of trying to be also uh, public-facing and provide services. So when COVID started, um, we came out immediately with an anxiety, COVID anxiety, a panic index to better measure people's emotional attitude. So, uh, you know, public figures can better understand both globally and in the U.S. how people really feel and, and, and create policies. And then when the, the vaccine came out, we had the COVID vaccine confident index, again, public facing. And then about a year later, uh, we came out with the uh, job index. So there was a lot around the jobs and 
and the silent resignation and people understanding what's happening. And it was important for us to measure uh, the public emotional attitude so we can actually do something about it. Um, I think understanding not just company, but the, the, the society at large, the, the public at large, uh, better understanding what their emotional pulses around key policy issues uh, is incredibly important because we have a tool which can provide that as a social good so we can actually, again, politicians, public figures, the media, if they use the tool, they can address the issues which are important to us um, as citizens and, and, and emotionally engaged. So we actually, an emotionally engaged and emotionally intelligent way without technology. So it, it, it provides a better outcome. Very cool. Uh, all right. So I'd like to talk about AI a little bit more generally now. Um, you know, you've been in this business, obviously, a long time. We've been partnered, as we said, since uh, 2018. Um, you know, so AI has been around longer than most uh, people realize. But with ChatGPT, a lot of people are being introduced to AI for the first time. And when I tell them I was partnered with an AI company for more than five years, they're like shocked, right? Um, it, it, it's really interesting. It's the hot topic of the day. I think it's, it's driving uh, tech company valuations here in the first half. Um, so I figured we'd hit on it. Um, in regards to ChatGPT, what, what are some of the opportunities for, for large language models? Yeah, that's a great question. By the way, I'm... Uh... I'm really fascinated by the awareness that ChatGPT and OpenAI brought to the market. I mean, AI has been around for a long time and, and uh, you know, 50 years in terms of the making, but really over the last, I would say, decade or so more, we have had a chance to really use AI because of the digitization of the world and more data, more computing power and so on. But really what ChatGPT did is it brought the whole concept of OA. AI is really part of our, or can be part of our world and professionally, personally, um, really to a different level. And, and this awareness uh, is incredible. And it opens up a lot of opportunities, both on the good side, and obviously there are some risks. And, uh, but there's no you know, revolution without risks and, and nothing gets solved before it's actually here. So now we're here, now we have to face it. In terms of opportunities, I mean, the, uh, the opportunities, I think, short-term are somewhat known, but longer-term, I think, are, are significant, very significant, because all those large language models are improving, um, aggressively improving, not just within the large organizations, but also within, you know, uh, open-source developer communities. And, and so there's, there's a lot happening. Um, there, are, there are really two ways to think about is uh, let's call it generative AI. One is dependent on the large language model, which is, is exactly what, what it sounds. It's trying to use training from textual conversations, you know, which is pre-trained on a very, very large data set to become, you know, conversational and provide answers like a human being would. Now, it's all still heavily statistical, Right? It's like us putting something into Google search bar, which we have been used for years, where when you start typing, it shows you what else it could mean. It's predicting what it thinks you have in mind. Large language models or generative AI is based on large language models. It's really that. It's trying to predict not the next 
word or phrase, but in the sentences and narratives and, and paragraphs. But it's still a prediction model. Right? It's based on what it thinks, and that's why it's also a loss in meaning. It's making up stuff, which, by the way, is very similar to the brain. We make up stuff because, again, the subconscious mind makes decisions. The rational mind tries to make find a reason and narrative, so it makes it up all the time, and we can go into that. But this is fascinating. Um, so that's using generative AI to have an interaction with a machine to get answers in a much easier way than it was ever will ever be able to. There's a second part of generative AI, which is um, or AI usage, not on large language model, but actually on structured data. And that's where also a lot of the usage comes, where instead of having an, uh, a terminal where you look at the data, maybe you have a search bar and you just ask the question, hey, who is my best salesperson? Or tell me about, you know, McDonald's or Target's um, behavior, customer behavior around around the, the event, which was, you know, a few months ago. And it just spits out the answers and gives you the results in nice chart format without you actually doing the research. So there's a lot happening depending how you train the models and how you use it. And that will clearly create a lot of um, efficiencies, effectiveness, um, what we call also cognitive load reduction. It reduces our need to use the rational mind to find results because it's there. But it will require us to change uh, our definitions of what it means to be a stock picker or you know a writer or an artist or whatever it is. And so thus so it comes with a change, but it has all, everything has come with change, correct? When we started with having computers, people were up in arms. What happens to math? Now people don't have to learn math. Well, they don't have to learn that math, but they have to learn a different kind of logic. And so it takes you to a different level and it, it enhances clearly uh, the human um, the capabilities, productivity, and I believe longer term also um, you know, satisfaction. But it comes with risks. And I think the biggest risk here is not just how it impacts us as humans in our worlds, they, you know, personal as well as the professional, um, in the professional settings, but also the risk in terms of privacy, in terms of security, uh, the risk in terms of ethical behavior um, and the responsible behavior. And all those things have not been addressed yet to the full extent as it should. And it's not expected to, because as long as the technology isn't out there, nobody, fe nobody feels the need to come up with policies and guidelines. But now it is, so we really have to put our act together and come up with it. Otherwise, we're running into a free-for-all, and, and we see a lot of the bad usage of the capabilities, like we see today already, uh, in terms of cyber security issues and incidents, and deep fake issues, correct, where somebody can pretend, I could pretend I'm Mike Halen and talk about uh, a company to buy and or short and it's not you and I'm just making it up and that has obviously illegal implications um, and that's a risk and that's a risk which today's technology can still somewhat figure out so we have AI fighting AI to figure it out but I think that capability is slowly going away as AI is improving so we need to find better ways to protect ourselves. Yeah, that stuff's really interesting, right? We're in a, there's a massive distrust of government and media. And I, I know smart people that, that 
tell me that they're having real difficulty discerning fact from fiction, right? And so all that stuff is is scary. And and um, you know, I, I think there there needs to be some sort of um, regulation on it. But um, yeah, it's interesting, and it's really interesting to see what happens to the job market, job market, right? With all of the improvements in AI and automation, and um, you know, what does that mean for workers moving forward? Well, there's definitely going to be a rotation happening. There has to be a redefinition of what it means to be, you know, a banker or an investment professional or anything. And, but again, the, the, we are used to that. Every time there is a revolution, there is a change. Right? When the first cars came, it changed the whole industry around horses. Um, and so we're used to the fact that the world is moving forward. And, you know, I, I think uh, it, it's interesting to see some of the conversation. And you think about the educators. The first reaction when ChatGPT came out from educators, from teachers was, oh, my gosh, we're going to have to, you know, prohibit the use. Otherwise, we can't figure out if the student actually learned it or, or wrote it or whether it was done by one of the large language models. I think that's the wrong attitude. I think the attitude is, this is here. I mean, it's going to happen. Let's figure out how we can leverage that and make sure that our, our students are even more creative than they used to be. And so we have to just, yes, it's effort. Correct? We don't like effort. We don't like to change our status quo, um, which is, by the way, emotional as well. Um, but... Uh, no, we don't want to change the status quo. And so we're looking to, you know, suppress uh, new opportunities, not understanding that the opportunities are here and they actually have a positive, can have a positive impact if we actually think it's so. And so it's a challenge for all of us. Every, everyone, every, every profession, every vertical to understand what does it mean, the fact that we now have a capability which is out there, people are aware, which are being used day in, day out. And how does that, what does that mean to society? What does it mean for us? What does it mean for me? Yeah, a lot of unanswered uh, questions. Definitely uh, interesting times to be alive. And something I think about, right? I have a, I have a 15-year-old, right? And so making sure he, he chooses a career that's going to be around by the time he gets out of college, right? <laughs> Uh, well, put an AI behind it, and it might. <laughs> um, but yes, it's uh, it's fascinating. So we at Cognovi Labs are very conscientious about that, and and put a lot of effort around uh, understanding the, these compliance issues around responsible ethical privacy and security issues to make sure that we use it in a, in a responsible way. And you know, the large language models for us is just the an additional icing on the cake. We already had the cake. It's our technology. It's something ChatGPT doesn't do. Nobody does except us. So we're just, you know, we're aggressively building out our capabilities with every new new functionality which is being out, which is out there to provide more value to our clients. That's awesome. I think that's a perfect spot to wrap it up. Uh, where can, um, you know, if any of our listeners, you know, any chief marketing officers out there or, uh, you know, restaurant executives, you know, want to reach out to you and, and inquire about your services, where, how's the best way to reach you? Yeah, go to our website, cognovilabs.com and uh, 
send us a text or send us an email at info at cognovilabs.com and love to talk to you how we can help you emotionally engage with custom. That's great. Good stuff. Thanks for doing this. And uh, thanks to the listeners uh, for checking us out. Have a great day, everybody. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.